If it's valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Dan Fee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. I have a very exciting guest today. His name is Gavin Peacock. Gavin hails from England, but he's currently living in Calgary. Gavin has lived my dream career, which was to play professional football. Gavin played for the likes of Bournemouth, QPR, Charlton Athletic, Newcastle, and my most beloved club of all time, Chelsea FC. Gavin has a really interesting story to tell, so tune in to find out more. And I just want to say it's a privilege to have you sit and chat for a bit. Great, pleasure. Pleasure. Um, Okay, so the first question, just Mm. to get my listeners up, uh, uh, up to date, is can you like briefly describe your ascendancy to like the Premier League and sure. just how it, it all happened? And also attached with that is, could you give us a brief description of what it takes to be a pro? Like mm. what, mm. It, like what kind of sacrifices you need to make and yeah, how you get there? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, as you all know, um, being a professional footballer, soccer player in England and in Europe is the schoolboy dream. And uh, I grew up in a in a house where my father. Keith was a professional footballer. So he played for Charleston Athletic for 17 years, played over 600 games. Um, and he's actually known as the, uh, he got a record as the first substitute ever used in English league football. So back in the day when it was just 11 v 11, and I like to say when men were men, you know, and they just <laughs> played on with broken legs, uh, the FA got together and said, look, we need, a, we need a 12th man. We need a substitute that can come onto the field of play um, and replace an injured player or give the coach options. And so on the first day of the, uh, uh, I think it was about three or four weeks into the season of 1965, uh, my dad was the 12th man for Charlton Athletic and there was an injury and he got on the field and he was clocked as the first substitute ever in English football. So he he doesn't really like that stat because he said, I played over 600 games for Charlton and more than any other outfield player and I get remembered for not being good enough to be in the starting (laughs) line. So I was brought up with you know, in a footballing family and I had my dad who was captain of Charlton Athletic and a real role model to look at. So there was a privilege there and it got me really started because, you know, I was watching these players, I knew the players there um, and I was at the stadium week after week and and then I just really, my dad, he never uh, pushed me into uh, playing football but he he encouraged me, he was a great coach and I kind of naturally began to kind of want to follow in my dad's footsteps Mm -hmm. um i think i was an okay player when i was young uh decent maybe better than average but not great um and and so i just went through playing for the school team and then when i got a little bit older represented my district and county and then when i was 15 i was actually i'd excelled at that point and i represented england played for england schoolboys and at that point all the clubs in the country were after the England's crop of youngsters that would be mm-hmm. the next generation and um, and I left school at 16 to sign professional forms for Queen's Park Rangers so just to get to that stage from being a lots of people ask me you know well that's a you know how do you become a professional footballer well you've got to desire it number one right uh, you've got to have some talent number two but then the biggest thing after that is is your dedication and your hard work, and I would say your resiliency. Right. Because there were players, the young lads I played with growing up, in, you know, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, who were better than me. Right. Uh, stronger, had better skills, were faster. But when the knocks and the setbacks happened, they 
they couldn't get past those. Mm. Um, What's like a knock? Give a description. Well, I would say, you know, you don't get selected for that particular team, the representative team, and it's a discouragement. Uh, right. Or you begin to play badly for a, uh, a period of time in the season and, and you're getting criticism from people around you and, and the ability to take that and to process it and to come back stronger from it right. is key. The other thing is injuries. I mean, sure. a lot of young right. lads get injuries. Now, you've got to be able to come back from that well. But there is that aspect of some guys who were promising got injured and you wonder, well, if they hadn't got injured, it, right. was a, it was a bad injury. It really did kind of stop them making it. So there is that aspect of of having some good health and fitness. But I was 16, just about 17, when I signed professional forms for QPR. But then, you see, here's the thing, is then when it, that's when it starts, because only a fraction of those who actually sign as professionals at 17 right. will actually make it in a long-term career. So just signing doesn't guarantee that you would... Uh... You might have a two-year contract, uh, three years at best, which takes you up to your 21, and they look at you and think, right, he'll come through in that time, hopefully. Right. Uh, but... I would say uh, out of the eight boys who signed with me, uh, you know, professional forms, there was only two that went on to make it. And I think I was probably the one that had actually a a long career. The other guy just kind of had a few years and faded away. So to stay and then to stay in it and to have a full career, that's why I admire, you know, I mean, I played for 18 years. I played over 600 matches. But I, uh, and then I'm at that level, and then I admire people like uh, Alan Shearer or right. Beckham or Giggs, Ryan Giggs. Right. And you go at the very, very top, and they stayed there for that long. Right. That right. takes a lot of uh, determination right. and, and, and strength of character. Yeah, it sounds like it. So when you sign like a contract, that two year mm. period, do you feel like clubs treat you with humanity, or do they just see you as like money? Like, like somebody that can make us money or do they yeah. actually get involved with your life and really yeah. encourage you to go through the process yeah or is this something like you're saying it's like a personal resilience an yeah. internal resilience that pushes you there yeah no that's a good question i i think uh interesting i think maybe when i was younger there was still that the clubs look at you and you are an investment right sure. they think this guy could play for the first team we want him to be good for our club but then he might be worth a bit of money um but there was a very much more of a personal care involved uh, i think the coaches were you know they cared about the players and developing them and finding out how what their home life is like and right. developing them as young men um i think as the more money's come into it it's become more and more cutthroat okay much more cutthroat so it's much more that the players are commodities and and then the motive changes a little bit more to well we look after them but for the sake of the money that right. they might be worth right. rather and then they can get cut and discarded and out the way. And it, it can become a bit of a meat market. Um, so, like in anything, the bigger the money, more that's at stake, it, you know, greed can corrupt right. and uh, power can corrupt. And so I'm not saying the game is corrupt, but there is a certain amount that's, uh, how can I say it? Well, put it this way. Uh, I, I say this. There's a great need for mentoring of young men in general across sure. society. You know, men need young men need role models. They need kind of father figures. And uh, when I started in professional football, I mean, I obviously had my father at home, but the older professionals, they kind of took me under their wing. Right. There was a natural, oh, look at the young guys coming through. Let's look after them. Let's pass on a bit of wisdom. I found that at the end of my career, uh, that became less so uh, because uh, 
we had lots of players coming in from different uh, countries. The money was bigger. The first team got a bit more separate from the youth team. Right. And there was less of, it's like, look after myself and less of bring the youngsters on. Right. Um, so the youngsters then get uh, less mentoring. And I think they suffered f- for it. They were coming into the game with less mentoring. So they were, some of them were quite undisciplined young men. And then what would normally happen is if they'd come in undisciplined in my day, right. the older professionals would have sorted them out. Right. Yeah. Right. And coached them right so they earned their stripes. So um, I think that, that was a big change in the game in my time. Right. Is there anybody in particular that you are grateful for that, had, that you had a relationship, like a mentoring relationship with? Yeah, I mean, I had several players at, at Queen's Park Rangers, uh, names that you might not know, but Chelsea fans of old would, would know the names of uh, uh, Clive Walker and Mike Fillery and Gary Chivers. These were actually old Chelsea players that right. came to, to QPR. They really took me under their wing. And then um, we had, a, we had an uh, England international uh, who came from Liverpool. His name was Sammy Lee. And he played in the great Liverpool team of the 1980s right. where okay. John Barnes was playing. Right, John they Barnes. were winning everything. And Sammy was a midfield player like myself. And he used to take a real interest in how I was playing in the reserve team when I was young and, and how I did in training. And just a little word here or there of encouragement sure. from an older guy to a younger guy. And that translates across the board. It really gave me a boost. And, you know, I'm always grateful uh, for, for Sammy Lee's input in my life. Wow, that's amazing. That's good to know, just mm. to hear kind of the background of uh, how it all works. Mm. Um, what do you miss most about playing professional football? Um, I miss uh, two things. Um, it's actually not playing. Lots of people say, oh, you miss playing. Well, I had a long and full career, so I don't, I, you know, I was blessed to, I think, be as good as I could have been uh, and didn't have any major injuries that stopped mm-hmm. me playing. But I miss two things. One is being super fit. <laughs> There's nothing better than feeling super fit. I mean, when you can run all day and, and then you go to bed tired and you wake up the next morning and you feel like you've got a new body. Wow. Now, if I do that, it takes me two weeks before I feel like I've got a new body because right, right. it's just the natural aging process. But, yeah, professional footballers are really fit because you've got to be able to run long distance. You've got to be a sprint. You've got to be agile. You do it for 90 minutes. Uh, you've got iron lungs, and it's a great feeling of being super fit. I miss that. And the second thing I miss is... Uh, being with the guys in the dressing room because there's something great about men gathered together playing for a great cause where the risk is high and the reward is great right and you know uh i I, you know even now when i'm in my position in the church now i love to kind of gather men together and stir them up to what is a, a noble vision for being men because it's it's ingrained in men's souls and you do that together um it's a stirring thing right. and you know it's it's a catching thing and it's something that uh, i think uh, people respond to as they say yeah that's good in sport there's lots of things we look at and say that's not great in sport or they're not being great models but that togetherness men together right. on the field of battle you know willing to lay down their lives for each other that was the best teams i played for those were the kind of uh, that men that had that sacrificial kind of leadership about them and uh, it's that's the kind of thing I miss with, with the guys in the dressing room. Yeah. No, that's, I know that's a big part of sports for me, mm. too, as well. There's the relationship and community. Mm. Uh, along with that question is, uh, I know you played for QPR, mm. Bournemouth, and Chelsea. Mm. Out of all the teammates you've had, was there any particular teammate that mm. stood out as far as, like, athleticism, giftedness, or personality that yeah. you found, like, fascinating? Yeah. Um, I played with, uh, at Chelsea, I played with... Um, some a couple of the great players in the world in uh, Ruud Hullet, who was the uh, 
the Dutch international player, captain of Holland, and he'd won World Footballer of the Year. Right. He had the long dreadlocks. He played for AC Milan as well in the in the nineteen eighties and nineties. Uh, he was a maestro on the field. And he came to Chelsea. He was in his early thirties, and just to play on the same field as Rudy was like six foot three elegant powerful but he had this amazing football ability he was just like a machine it just uh, every decision he made seemed to be right decision wow then there was Gianfranco Zola who was an international for Italy right Uh, he grew up the same team as uh, when uh, Diego Maradona was playing for Napoli so he was kind of like Maradona's understudy and he was a little guy that was just a a little magician uh, with the ball I loved uh, him and he was a very humble man as well um, but the, actually, the best player I, I played with, the one I looked to, uh, is was my player manager who signed me for Chelsea, and that's Glenn Hoddle. Oh yeah, Glenn. Uh, yeah. And Glenn played for Tottenham, and he played for England. Right. Um, and then he went on into management, and he was still player manager when I was at Chelsea. And uh, Kevin Keegan, who was my manager at Newcastle United, when I signed for Chelsea, he said you'll learn more from playing with Glenn in training than anything else. And the his football mind was like no one else that I ever played with, even taking in consideration those great players. Right. And then he went on to manage England as well as the full England senior team manager. And uh, his his football mind on the field translated to being a manager as well. Was, he was he was just a wonder to, to watch. He, he was one of those players as well that when you played with him, he got the ball and he would be in midfield and if I made it I just made a run forward right. and I'd just hear the ball coming over my right ear and just land perfectly he just knew where you were going to oh, be yeah, perfect and uh, he was just versatile both left foot both right feet, foot both feet left foot right foot it was as if he had a computer in his mind that could assess every option on the field when he picked the ball up and what was the most dangerous one and then deliver the ball with perfect accuracy and, right. and, and speed uh, I played against uh uh, Manchester United a couple of times and they had a player called Eric Cantona playing for them oh yeah Cantona Cantona was yeah. their star player and we we beat them at Stamford Bridge uh, in my first season at Chelsea and I'd scored the goal it was, it was the winning goal And um, but Glenn was magnificent that day and uh, though I'd got the winner Glenn was the best player right. and Cantona said that um after the game to the newspapers, he said that Hoddle was like Mozart in a world full of heavy rockers. And I thought, oh, that's a great way of, you know, it's yeah, just like yeah, a, yeah. you know, classical music out there, struggling the ball left, right and centre. I thought that was a great way of describing yeah, him till, till I realised I was one of the heavy rockers that, <laughs> that wasn't as good as yeah, Glenn. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. No, that's brilliant. Um, you also have an interesting stat. You're, aren't you the first Chelsea player in the Premier League era to have a, a hat-trick? That's right. Yeah, yes, so, yeah. like your dad has a stat, you have an interesting stat. Yeah, yeah, runs my, through the family. My stat's better than my dad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. <laughs> no, um, yeah, that was uh, Middlesbrough uh, at Stamford Bridge. Um, and that would have been 1995-6 season. 1995-6 season. And yeah, I didn't realise at the time. I mean, it was one of those... Glenn was put... At the, my time at Chelsea, it was a it was a turnaround era. Glenn Hodder was changing the structure at Chelsea, the flavour of the soccer, the way that we played and everything, the way we trained, the way we ate... Uh, the diet, the science, and uh, he got together the team. We had additions of players. Hullet was with us at the time, and uh, and we came together in this one game at, at Stamford Bridge, and we beat them. Uh, I think it was five nil. We beat uh, Middlesbrough, and I got three. Hullet, I think, made at least one of my goals that day, and um, 
So it was great to be part of that team. Right. It was just the way Glenn said afterwards, this is the kind of way I want us to play. That was a picture of what we peaked at. And then to get the hat-trick and for it... And then I, someone said, yeah, you, you, it's the first hat-trick for Chelsea in the Premier League. Because right. the Premier League was only about three years old by right, then. Right, right, right. So other guys have obviously scored hat-tricks. Mine was the first Premier League hat-trick. That's, that's incredible. It's a really good stat. <laughs> I've still got the ball. You get the match ball and it's signed by all the players on your team. Oh, that's brilliant. So I've still got that ball somewhere at home. That is brilliant. So most people, if they don't know, uh, you are a man of faith. You're a Christian. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I know this is very interesting with athletes, superstition. Mm. Okay, so I wanted to know, was there any superstition for you before you became a Christian on the field? Mm. For me, I'm really attached to the number 21 right. or 5. Yeah. I feel like I play good with those numbers. If mm. I don't wear that, I have mm. a little mental yeah, heartache. Mental or if my jersey's too big, my yeah. shorts are too big, yeah. it, it's mentally it yeah. messes me up. Was there anything that you had in your game um, that was superstitious? And... After you became a Christian, did that change? Right, yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, sportsmen, uh, sportswomen will be a funny bunch because there's little routines you get into. Right. And I think it's it, it's the routines that then can become superstitions. Um, so, I, you know, I, I like the number eight or the number ten, for instance. But it, and, and I liked, you know, I, I think I would have been, yeah, that could spill over into superstition maybe before I was a Christian but afterwards it was more like just this is my routine Mm -hmm. this is my routine how I put my shin pads on but if I didn't put them on in the right order or if I didn't do in a certain way um I don't didn't think oh I was going to play badly because of it Uh, whereas before I might have it might have affected me more so I still had my routines like I did before as a Christian but if the routine was broken it it didn't matter so much because it wasn't rooted in a superstition of some other force out there that's that's not a a loving God that's in charge of all things and um, so you know I mean it's like you know I would pray before a game but I wouldn't pray to win I would pray that I would honor God in the way that I play Right, um, and uh, and I think you know I, that gave me a freedom on the field then um, to play as a Christian footballer. So I was a Christian first, but he put me into the sphere of professional football, and right. I was to play to the game within the rules to the best of my ability for the glory of God. Right, and there's something great about that in whatever walk of life uh, that you're in. If you're a Christian, you you know what it's all for and who it's from and who it's for and so there's a kind of uh, pleasure that you know if you you receive skills from God to use for his glory so when you use them well and with excellence and you will give him the glory you know that there's a feeling of pleasure in that uh, that is an echo of the pleasure of God himself I I like Eric Liddell the um, the runner the runner the chariots of fire was a movie made about him and he was allegedly he said that you know uh, he was he was a, he went on to be a missionary in China, which mm-hmm. is where he died in a prison camp. And uh, he said, uh, uh, in the movie anyway, but it's a flavour of his life. He says, God made me uh, for China and as a missionary, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. Right. You know, when I get take what He's given me and I use it as the best of my ability for His glory, I feel the very pleasure of God. And I think that a Christian sportsman, in the creativity. Uh, that we use on the field in the way that we use our bodies to thrill the fans that come to see. There's an actual uh, pleasure of God that we can feel in the way that we use our creative abilities for his glory. That's brilliant. Um, in an interview, I heard you uh, you said one co- um, comment that it stuck with me. You said, mm. when you became a Christian, 
um, there was less of a pressure to perform and you felt more free and you played better. Right. Um, because there's, a, there's that kind of mentality. If you want to own your art, you have to spend a lot of time and obsession mm. with it mm. to get better. But you felt a freedom. Could you unpack that a bit? Like, yeah. For people that want to perhaps get into like further in their uh, athletics, mm. they want to go pro and mm. they feel like, God, maybe I need to put God on the side or put faith mm. on the side to really focus on this. Is this something that yeah. other two, do they, are they like mutually exclusive yeah. or can they go together? Well, the, the first thing, you know, I have to say is that uh, I'd achieved the schoolboy dream um, and I had everything the world says would would make me happy. I had, the, you know, the young lad, I had a bit of fame, I had a bit of money in my pocket, I had the great career, um, and the world tells you that'll make you happy. Then I had it, and I, actually, because football was my God, because football was my identity, if I played well, I was up. If I played badly, I was down. So right. I've got the schoolboy dream. I'm 18 years old, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not all it's cracked up to be. And uh, I was living at home at the time, and one night my mum, who's not a Christian, wasn't a Christian, she said, oh, I'm just going to pop along to the local church tonight. And I said, I'd to keep her company. And I went along to the church, and I don't remember what the minister preached on, but he said, Gavin, do you want to come back to my house afterwards? I have a youth meeting. There'll be half a dozen people your age there. Um, So I pulled up to that meeting in my nice sports car. As I say, I've got everything the world says, you know. I was in the in crowd. These folks in there weren't in the in crowd. But when I heard them pray and when I heard them speak about Jesus Christ there was a joy and reality they had that I did not have Uh, and then I heard the minister began to unpack what is the gospel uh, the good news of what God has done through his son Jesus Christ to rescue sinners uh, from his judgment uh, because I realized then that uh, my biggest problem wasn't gaining the approval of the crowd on a Saturday by great performances on the field or being the best player in the team and having a long career. My, my biggest issue was to be in a right relationship with the living God, mm-hmm. that I was a sinner against him and I deserved his judgment because he's a just judge. But at the same time, he was so loving and gracious that he'd sent his own son who willingly came and lived a perfect life I could never live and died on the cross to take the punishment I deserve and rose again and who's coming back and and that was the good news that I believed uh, God gave me the faith to believe and I was I was saved and then everything changed so then everything reorients so Christ is God from when football is God and now football can be enjoyed right in the right position under Christ um and so there was a freedom, like I talk about, that came with that because my identity wasn't tied up in that ultimately. My hope isn't tied up in that ultimately. And uh, I live for something that is uh, eternal, not, not temporal. Right. Um, one thing I do say is that I was already a professional player at the time. For young people coming through, especially nowadays, it's a very difficult thing because right. you might show promise as a young teenager, you know, and now as you get better and better... The press is, if you're in a Christian family, is, well, there's stuff on Sundays and we need you there or you will not make it. Right. And my advice to Christian parents is, uh, I don't tell them exactly what to do, but I do say that that sport has become God very much in our culture and it can't be so. Christ must be honored first. And if you're like taking your kids out of the church um, for weeks and weeks at a time, what are you saying to them about your own? Uh, desires for Jesus exactly. Christ and priorities 
they're never they're never going to see if they don't see any parents they're not going to see it for themselves and they're not within the sphere of hearing that truth of the gospel which is most valuable more than anything lots of parents you know i talk to how's your kids doing well they're doing well at school and they're doing well in sports and i want to say yeah but how's their souls yeah because the biggest need of any child is is not great education or great careers it's to be uh, a christian it's to have eternal life right uh, and then everything else finds its place uh, under that and i think that's the one of the big uh, issues for christian parents in churches with young sports uh, children who are good at sports coming through is to how to navigate those waters but it must be christ first seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you yeah that's that's yeah. really good um and that lends to one of my mm. last questions um so the name of this podcast is immaterial treasures right. and some kind of like what you've described we need to treasure things that are eternally valuable mm. is that one c.s lewis quote that says if I find in myself a desire in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. <laughs> so a lot of these parents that take their kids to sports yeah. or even me or anybody else, we, we, we want to achieve these great things in this world mm. because we know, in some sense, it brings a certain value to our life, mm. right? And perhaps our, our identity is wrapped up in mm. that. How do we get away from those things? Mm. Even You can speak from your own experience. From uh, And I know for you, you were on BBC, you were a pundit. Yeah. You could have stayed there. You could have done more with soccer, but mm. you decided to go into the ministry, preaching and teaching. Mm. Um, and some people might say, well, buddy, you could have made more money. Like mm. You could be stocking up more money for your kids or even for, you know, for any, anything else and being generous in that sense. Mm. What is, what, why is this a treasure, a greater treasure than the other lifestyle? Not to say that the other lifestyle can't be used right. for God, yeah. but... What is it about it that that you seem you see something and that's mm. why you went after it? Yeah. What's this immaterial treasure that you've seen in well, Christ? It, yeah, it's Christ Himself who's the who is the treasure. It, it's Christ who is is a person, not a theological construct. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Christ is your uh, main focus in whatever walk of life you're in, uh, the decisions you make will be. Uh, Christ-centered so that everything else pales into insignificance um, after him. Uh, It doesn't mean to say that they're not important, but compared to him, Mm -hmm. compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, everything else seems like nothing so that you can... You can hold things lightly, is what I say. You can hold your talents, your gifts, your careers, your money, uh, family even, as precious as your wife is to you. Um, She can't replace Christ because all these things can be taken away from you in an instance. Christ can't. And so as you pursue those things of of eternal value in Christ, uh, it allows you to risk all for the gospel. And then for me in particular, it was this call to pastoral ministry. It's not that way for everyone. And I came away to anonymity in Canada to to do my studies and ended up staying here. And you're right. People say, oh, you could have earned more money given to the poor if you'd stayed in England. You could have had a big, um, wider ministry because you were well known in England. Um, And... uh, and I say, maybe so, um, but this is the direction I wanted to pursue because I wanted people to hear what I had to say from the Word of God and not get the football thing uh, mixed up in it. And then God, sort of, uh, after a while, pushed me back out into a wider ministry, and we're doing a podcast, and you know, using that testimony right. of the former career to kind of encourage people and say to those who are 
who are not Christians and maybe even who are listening to this and whose ears are pricked and say, well, yeah, there is a greater glory to be had in life. There is a greater, great necessity. All the questions and uh, longings and desires that you have in this life can't, can't be ultimately fulfilled forever unless they're fulfilled in Christ. Right. And until a man knows what he's created for, um, he uh, will always be searching for these things in other places. And that's what we find in our world, a, a world that's not lacking security, lost identity, and pleasure-seeking in all the other places apart from the one person who can satisfy all their longings, and that's Christ. And to set them in a right relationship with the living God, which is what they need. So when I'm in pastoral ministry, I say, well, I've played in front of millions of people on TV. Uh, I've been in front of millions of people in the studio on TV. I've played in front of thousands in stadiums. Um, but there's no greater pleasure than uh, preaching God's word to God's people and pastoring God's people because you're dealing with things of eternal value. Right. You're t- dealing with the souls of people, uh, and they go on forever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's heaven or hell. There's two destinations, and, and the great work of pastoral ministry is to, uh, is to shepherd God's people and coach them, as it were, in some yeah. way, coach them on the right track because people are kind of going at different rates and just like a team, you know, you've got to bring them on together and then calling others into the team uh, where they can know... Uh, true happiness and, 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 and true purpose in life. Right. That's brilliant. Um, so this is, this is a question that I, I feel like I know the answer, but mm. you've stated that Christ is your immaterial treasure, the greatest treasure in your yeah. life. So let's say Gavin came back or was reborn yeah. and started life over again, and you never had a, a, a soccer career, but all you knew was Christ and you lived in some remote country. Would that be enough for you? Hmm. If I knew Christ, yes. yes, yes, Christ is is enough because it's it's not as if uh, you have a good life and all you need is Christ to as the icing on the cake. Right. The Bible says if you have not Christ, you don't have life. Right. So the beauty and the encouragement then is for anybody, you can have this joy and hope in a suffering world, no matter whether you're rich or poor, no matter whether you have material success in, in terms of uh, you're famous or you're never known, like you say, in a remote country, uh, you can have a joy and hope because you know Christ, you know what you were made for, by whom you were made. You have the word of God, the people of God, the spirit of God, and you ha- your best life is yet to come. Exactly. And uh, and that's the great joy of the Christian life, and and that's the joy that we share with. And we meet Christians, and I've just been to Africa last year, met Christians there from a totally different socio-economic background to myself, and yet we're all sinners saved by the grace of God, heading for heaven together. Right. So with the same treasure, same treasure, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for uh, taking some time to speak with me. One last question. Yeah. This is a Chelsea question. Okay. What do you think about Frank Lampard as a coach and our chances of the season? Where do you think we're going to finish? Um, I think I love Frank. I mean, what a great player. Frank came to the club after I left, uh, although he was at the club with John Terry, who was there as a schoolboy when I was uh, a player. Yeah. Um, And he's a Chelsea legend. I think he's made for management because I think he's intelligent, thoughtful. I think he can command respect of players. Uh, I've not been in the dressing room with him in terms of seeing how he is with the players, but the one thing I would say is he'll have the fans behind him for a while, but results will say everything. And it's a big job to take on Chelsea Football Club, and he's not got a lot of experience. Um, But that said, 
someone like Frank, I could see kind of, you know, turning the tables and and the, the doubters and, and and finishing, you know, in the top uh, four with Chelsea this year. Yeah. Um, I think that would be, you know, decent for Frank in his first season, having lost Hazard as well. Yeah, and, that's true. Um, Hazard's but, gone. But Chelsea will be a, a force to be reckoned with, and I just hope Frank gets time because I'd love to see someone like Lampard, right. a proper Chelsea guy, Englishman who knows the club and the and the fans and that to to give be given time to take them on to have a good run of of success for the next you know 10 years that'd yeah. be wonderful to see trouble is in today's game you don't get a lot of time yeah it's sacking mm. revolving door it is indeed yeah, yeah i am a, i'm i think he's going to do great as well good, good thank you gavin for okay. uh, speaking pleasure good thank stuff you. thanks